Our text this morning comes from 2 Peter, the first chapter, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to arouse you by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. And I will see to it that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word made more sure. You will do well to pay attention to this, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. On June 27, 1819, Adnarm Judson, after seven years of ministry in Burma, baptized his first convert. His wife, Anne Hazeltine, had been very instrumental in winning Mung Nao to the Lord, and she records how the scriptures had played a role in this. She wrote, A few days ago I was reading with him Christ's Sermon on the Mount, He was deeply impressed and unusually solemn. Said he, These words take hold on my liver. They make me tremble. God spoke through Isaiah 2,700 years ago to this effect. This is the man to whom I will look, he that is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Hear the word of the Lord. You who tremble at his word, saith the Lord. For 2,000 years, the Bible has been taking hold of people's livers and making them new. You remember how it happened for Augustine, that dissolute, immoral man of Egypt? He was sitting in a garden and he heard the verse being read from Romans 13.13 about the wickedness of the flesh and the Lord changed him with one verse of Scripture. Martin Luther, it was Romans 1.17. Listen to what he says. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. Jonathan Edwards, it was another verse, 1 Timothy 1:17. Listen to what he says. The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived in much since was on reading the words of 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the King eternal, 
immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. As I read those words, there came into my soul a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I had ever experienced before. Never any words of Scripture seemed to me as those words did. Century after century after century, from Egypt to Germany to New England, the Bible has been exerting a mighty force upon people's lives and transforming them and the world. And the big question is, why? And First Peter, or Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, I think, give the answer. First of all, you must remember this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Now that passage teaches fairly clearly, doesn't it, that when you read the Bible, yes, you read the words of men, but vastly more than the words of men, also the words of God. Yes, all the vocabulary distinctives, all the stylistic distinctives of the human authors are there, but Peter mentions two dimensions of what happened when biblical writers spoke that are more than that. First, they spoke from God, he said. What they have to say does not originate here in the human mind. This mind of theirs was a channel, not a reservoir of truth. God was the reservoir, they were the channels, and the Bible is the river. And we... Well, we're downstream just lapping it up. And the other thing that he says in this passage is that God didn't just pour into their minds truth and then go away to see how they would manage communicating it, but rather it says men born, literally carried by the Holy Spirit, spoke. So not only was God involved in communicating truth to these biblical writers, he was there aiding them in their communication of it so that it could be said, this is the word of God. It's the same thing that Paul taught in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, isn't it? All of Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching. And then he defines teaching in three ways. I sat Abraham on my lap last night. I always try to give him a key verse, and I use my text on Saturday night. So I sat him on my lap, and I read this verse to him, and he didn't have any idea what I was talking about. What's reproof? What's correction? What is training in righteousness? And I said it's like this. Here goes a man towards destruction, and the Bible is intended to say, Hey! Stop! Don't go that way! That's reproof, Abraham. And then the Bible is intended to say, Hey, turn around! This is the way to go! 
That's correction. And then the Bible is intended to say, here's how you go. Watch. I'll train you. The Bible is God's Word and is profitable for teaching, teaching which reproves, teaching which corrects, and teaching which trains in righteousness. All of it is God's truth. But they were talking about the Old Testament, weren't they? Peter and Paul. What about the New Testament that we call New Testament scriptures? Is there evidence in the Bible that at least the Bible claims that these books as well were written under the inspiration of God? The church has always answered that question with a resounding yes. Let me point you to some of the reasons for that. John 16:12 records that Jesus said, I have yet many things to say to you, to my apostles, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will speak not on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and declare things that are to come. In other words, I wish that I could go on speaking to you right now all the things I have to say with the authority that you accord to me as the Son of God. But I can't. It's too much for you to bear. There will come a day when I'm gone back to heaven that I will return to you in my spirit and I will continue right on with you. I will teach you so that you can provide an adequate foundation for the church. And Paul says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Paul says... To confirm this, if we take Paul as our model apostle, he says in 1 Corinthians 2.12, We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might understand the gifts bestowed on us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit of God, which is almost exactly like saying, not only do I have truth from God, but I am born by the Holy Spirit as I teach it in words that I don't make up, but the Holy Spirit prompts within me as I teach in my official capacity as an apostle. So if we take Paul as our model for the apostles, then I think it's fair to say that there is biblical warrant for saying that not only are Old Testament scriptures, but also the apostolic writings of the New Testament are inspired by God, written from Him and carried along by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 1.12, Paul says, I did not receive my gospel from men, nor was I taught it. It came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's the doctrine that I want to just state very simply for us this morning and then work with it for a bit. The doctrine is this. The Holy Spirit of God is the divine author of all Scripture. Now, if that doctrine is true, then the implications are so profound and far-reaching that there's nothing in your life and nothing in this world that should stay the same. If you just stop and think what it means that this book is written from God by the inspiration of God and therefore is God's truth, it just blows your mind away, especially in view of how we treat it. I want to talk about the implications of that this morning, but before I do, for the sake of our own strengthening and for the sake of many of you, I hope not many, some of you that I know of, 
who are sort of circulating on the outskirts of commitment. Let me try to state for you, simply as I can, what the reasonable basis of our persuasion is that this doctrine is true. The Holy Spirit is the author of Holy Scripture. I think most people, including myself and most of you probably, came to have a reasonable, strong confidence in this book as the Word of God, something like this. I think it probably happened in three stages. A little different for each of us, but something like this. First, the testimony of our conscience mixed with the inevitable and inescapable evidence that there's a God out there behind this orderly creation who made us, to whom we're accountable, together with bits and pieces that we picked up from the Bible, those three things conspired to deliver an inescapable message to our souls. You are guilty. That is not an irrational conclusion for a human being to make, that he stands guilty before a holy God for falling short of how much he should have thanked him and glorified him. That is a conclusion and a persuasion that is forced upon us by our own experience of ourselves and by our honest thinking about the world and about the God who must be out there. That's step number one. Step number two goes something like this. Somebody comes along and tells us the story of Jesus or reads it to us from Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John. And we see in that story an incomparable man who spoke and acted like so much more than a man. We see things like his authority, which he claimed to forgive sins and command winds and cast out demons. And we see his purity in his moral teaching. We see his utter self-surrender to the will of his Father in heaven. And we see his brilliant calm under cross-examination. And we see his righteous fury against hypocrites and his wonderful tenderness with little children. Suffer them to come to me. Don't send them away. Such belong the kingdom. And we see his patience with humble seekers who are confused. And we see his innocent submission to torture And then we hear from his lips the sweetest words that were ever spoken. The Son of Man came into the world to give his life a ransom for many. And the result is that he wins us. We cannot resist him. He is irresistibly wonderful, beautiful, trustworthy, reliable, great. How can we resist that Jesus? And so we give ourselves to him, trusting him for the forgiveness of those sins and that guilt we were so aware of and following him as the Lord of our lives. And that is not an irrational leap into the dark. It's the kind of decision you make every day about people you will trust or not. How do you decide whether to trust a babysitter with your children? How do you decide whether to trust a used car salesman. And he won't sell you a lemon. 
How do you decide whether to trust a lawyer to give you good counsel in this sensitive case? How do you decide whether to trust a friend with this secret you wouldn't tell anybody else? What do you do? It's not mathematical, merely rational procedure you follow, is it? You watch them. You look at them. You get to know them. And eventually, you draw a conclusion. There's a firm foundation for trust here. You tell them your secret. Is that irrational? Do we walk around accusing each other for leaving our children with babysitters? Or staking our lives on bus drivers and airplane pilots and all the other acts of faith we perform that nobody ever accuses us for irrationality of because we're thoughtful about them. And that's the way most of us came to believe in Jesus. We looked at that story. We saw that character. We saw those claims. And we said, this man is not a maniac. This man is not a liar. This man is real. If anybody was real who ever lived, it was Jesus. I'm going to trust Jesus. That's step number two. And step number three, very simply, is that once you've put your faith in Jesus, you take his word for what he says about the Bible. Jesus said about the Bible, Matthew 5, not a jot, not a tittle will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. He said in John 10 that the law or the scriptures cannot be broken. We look at him and we say, oh, with all those problems that I can see back there, Lord, and you weigh off, shall I trust this man or shall I go with some of the problems that I can see? And our trust wins us to a reasonable persuasion that we will stand with Jesus as he views the Old Testament. And then we see Jesus choosing 12 apostles, commissioning them to teach with authority, to be the foundation of his church. We hear him promising that he will send his spirit to guide them into all truth. Then we hear those apostles claiming to have that inspiration and teaching a message. And we say with him, the New Testament too I'll stand with. I'll stand with his apostles. And there is reasonable persuasion there. There's another way, however, that Jesus helps us come to a reasonable persuasion that the Bible is God's word. Not just in what he teaches about the Bible, but in this way. Isn't it true that the Bible, the truths we see all over the terrain of Scripture are like many colored rays refracting out from the prism of Jesus Christ? So that there's a kind of unity there, and just as the light and the prism of Christ helped us make sense out of our relation to God and to find harmony in it. So all of these truths all over the Bible in unity with this Christ help us make sense out of so many of our experiences in life. Not many people in the world have a reasoned philosophy of life with which they live in accordance. Most people just live from day to day on their inherited notions. And yet they'll accuse you of not having a well-founded philosophy if you tell them you live according to the Bible. What you should do is realize that most people, even reasonable people, choose their philosophy of life because it helps them make sense out of their life. And that's what I did. And that's what you do. 
Isn't it true that as you look at the world and you pick up ideas like failing marriages, rebellious children, drug addiction, warring nations, the return of leaves in spring, the insatiable longings of the human heart, the fear of death all over the world, the coming into being of little babies, the universality of praise and blame, the prevalence of pride everywhere. I was listening the other night to Firing Line at Yale University. I couldn't believe the arrogance that just emanated from those people as they talked about the upcoming election. And yet, in tandem with it, all over the world, people respect self-denial and admire people who deny themselves, sacrifice for great causes. It is a strange world we live in. Does not the Bible shed unbelievably telling light on the world in which you live, personally and worldwide? It does for me, and it confirms itself over and over again in my experience, as incisive divine insight to why things are the way they are. And that is a confirmation of Jesus' own teaching about the Word of God. Now, I hope that at Bethlehem, this doctrine, the Holy Spirit is the divine author of Holy Scripture, is a doctrine that we will die for and live for. I wish I had all day to talk about the implications of this doctrine. I'm going to put a little more of the spillover in the star for your practical use this week of things that I just don't have time to say. I notes pages long of implications that this book is God's Word. For example, it is true and reliable altogether. It is powerful, working in us that which is pleasing in God's sight. It is pure, like silver refined in a furnace seven times on the ground. It is sanctifying. It gives life. It makes wise. It gives joy. It promises great reward. It gives strength to the weak, hope to the despairing, comfort to the distraught, guidance to the perplexed, and most of all, salvation to the lost. It is inexhaustible in its wealth. Consider this word from the psalmist. How precious to me are thy thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are like the sand. Now, how much sand is there? There are all the beaches in the world. Then there's the bottom of the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean and the Indian Ocean and the Arctic Ocean. And then there's the Sahara Desert. There's a lot of sand in the world. If I would count the sum of your thoughts, they would be like the sand. And I believe that many thoughts are in the Bible. If you could spin out all the necessary implications of the revelation of God in Scripture, you would never come to an end. This book is an inexhaustible treasure house of joy. The Holy Spirit is the divine author of Scripture. Therefore, if you want to hear the Holy Spirit, listen to the Bible. Therefore, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, be filled with the Bible. If you want the power of the Holy Spirit, be mighty 
in the Scriptures. If you want to share the holiness of the Holy Spirit, guard your way according to His Word. If you long to be led by the Holy Spirit, follow His Word in Scripture. And if you want to have the mind of the Spirit, saturate your mind with the Bible. And if you want to love other people, give them the Bible. Give them a dramatization of it in your life. Give them a verbalization of it in your witness. And give them a donation of it all the time. I hope many of you give Bibles away at Christmas and birthdays. Have you ever thought of a neighbor that you know who doesn't ever go to church? Find a nice modern contemporary version of the Bible. Inscribe in it from your friend down the street, so-and-so, happy birthday, and send it to him. Or walk over and give it to him. If you're scared to talk to them, the Bible has power. Send birthday cards and say, today I was thinking about this verse. Whenever I write to people, I try to say what's on the front burner of my biblical meditation. And I hope that all of you are using the Bible, just saturating your life with the Bible. When you go to work and you have occasion at lunch, say, you know what I was thinking about this morning before I came to work? It's from the Bible. He said, and that's keeping me going today. What's keeping you going today? God has gripped us here at Bethlehem with the cause of frontier missions in these days. And so I want to close with some application to that. If the Spirit of God is the, the divine author of this book, then the most loving thing you can give to any people group in the world is the Scripture. Because in the Scripture, God speaks. And when God speaks, life happens. Therefore, all missions is fundamentally Bible translation. Whether you're translating it across a culture with your life, or whether you're writing it down with a written translation. All missions is transferring the Bible from one culture to another, God's Word from one culture and language to another. John Thomas, the sidekick of William Carey in 1796, sent out a challenge in his own periodical accounts of that mission that went something like this. I would give a million sterling a million pounds sterling if I had it to see a Bengal Bible. Oh, most merciful God, what an inestimable blessing will it be to these millions. Methinks all heaven and hell would be moved at a Bible's entering such a country as India. Oh, Lord, send forth thy light and thy truth. And that passion that Carey and Thomas had enabled Carey before he was done, after 41 years of mission work in India without a furlough, to translate all or part of Scripture into 36 languages. Adoniram Judson, Baptist missionary to Burma, translated the Bible into Burmese, finished it in 1834, wrote in his memoir something that rings so true today. He said in 150 years ago, this one perfect book, is the sacred deposit in the hands of the church. It has been deposited with injunction. Freely you have received, freely give. Woe be it to that man who withholds the treasure from his neighbor. Let me stop here. 
Tytoon Hotamart, who is the head of our Laotian ministries right now, is leading a house church over on Portland and 14th. And he is testifying to people who've never read the Bible. And he gave a, a Thai Bible to a man a couple of weeks ago. And the man was so completely captivated, he read the thing all week long. His wife said, he, his wife told uh, Python she couldn't get him away from it. Isn't it thrilling to realize that ten blocks away from here, there are people who've never read the Bible and who are reading it for the first time. And you know, there are thousands of Americans like that in this city. Can you believe it? It's true. Who grew up, saw it there on the shelf maybe, or saw it in a hotel room, maybe heard it on the radio once, never have read more than a chapter of it. Continuing with the quote. Woe to the man who withholds the treasure from his neighbor. Woe be to him who attempts to obscure the light of the lamp of heaven. Praise be to God for the Bible and missionary societies, the peculiar institutions of modern times. May their efforts be continued and enlarged a hundredfold until their work is consummated, until the Bible is translated and published in every language under heaven and a copy of the sacred volume is deposited in every palace and house and hut where man doth dwell. How are we doing since he wrote that 150 years ago? Well, the World Christian Encyclopedia was just published two years ago that has amazing statistics in it. Here's what they say about Bible translation. The world of the 20th century has 7,010 languages. Of these, by the year 1900, the Christian scriptures had been available in whole or in part in 537 languages. Through the prodigious efforts of the Christian church, by 1980, 1,811 languages with scriptures. This leaves 5,200 languages with no translations as yet. A staggering challenge for global Christianity. Native speakers of these languages in 1980 numbered 185 million, 4.2% of the world with no access to the scriptures in their mother tongue. Translation projects are therefore now underway in 986 languages. Despite this monumental translation work by the churches, Worldwide, it is calculated that at least 3,297 further languages have a definite need for immediate Bible translation, but up to the present, no one has begun the necessary work in them. So Judson's plea 150 years ago is as real today as it was then. Freely we have received, freely we should give. Let me close with a personal testimony and call to action. On my 15th birthday, my parents gave me this Bible here and wrote, my mother wrote on the inside flap, Happy Birthday, Son, January 11, 1961. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book, Mother and Daddy. And on the second leaf, I wrote in a handwriting that looks like a fourth grader's instead of a 15-year-old, Galatians 2.20. And I was flipping through this book last night because I haven't used this for 10 years. I don't like this translation anymore. This, I, I, I'm just astonished. I can remember as a boy, going to, I always had a bedroom by myself because I only had one sister, 
And uh, I would go to bed and flick on my light and pull this book out between the ages of 15 when I went away to college. And I had a red pencil. And every New Testament book in here is copiously underlined in red. And I can remember reading that, writing in the margin things like this. Five years later, after I got this book from my folks, I spent three weeks in the hospital at Wheaton College with Mono, beginning of my sophomore year in college. And as I lay there, I can remember, just as if it happened yesterday, Chaplain Evan Welch, with his gray-haired flat top, coming in to see me, prayed with me, introduced himself. We had never met personally before then. And as he left, just as he got to the door, I can remember him opening the door, turning and saying, do you have a favorite Bible verse? And I had not been asked that question for years. And without a second hesitation, I said, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I remember turning on the radio to WETN, the campus station, to hear the special emphasis, uh, spiritual emphasis speaker for that week. It was John Harold Ockengay of Park Street Church, Boston. This is 1966. And I lay there listening to him preach. And then the next day, and the next day, for five days. And at the end of those days, I was so moved by what I heard that I said, Lord, there is nothing that I would rather do than to know the Bible and teach and preach the Bible like John Harold Ockengay did in chapel that week. And Noel came to see me. I'd just fallen in love with her two months before in the summer. And I said, Noel, I think I'm going to seminary. I dropped organic chemistry. I scrapped my pre-med plans. And from that day until this very day, the Bible has been my sweetheart. And I would rather spend my time studying, preaching, and teaching the Bible for a family of people like you than anything that the world could offer me. And I want to close by calling you to action. Those of you who are younger and have before you big decisions in your life about what you're going to do with it, let me ask you to ask yourself three questions. One, is there not a famine of the Word of God in the world? Not just all over the world where the Bible hasn't been reached, but in churches and seminaries in this country where it isn't believed or valued. Question number two. Can you think of anything more valuable than spreading the Word of God, more fulfilling, more rewarding? And third, isn't it the Word of God that will give life to the lost, that will bring power to the church? And to those of you who already are firmly fixed, in your profession and are not called to a vocational ministry of the Word, my challenge to you is that you be the incarnation of God's Word where you are. You are utterly essential in the kingdom work. That you flesh out and incarnate this book where you are, where nobody else can do it, in your unique 
way. My challenge is that you be so saturated by the Word of God that you obey it, that you believe it, that you cherish it and love it and meditate on it and ponder it and memorize it, that it just oozes from you for the life of the people around you. Because blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in what? In the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates, how often? Day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth its fruit. His leaf does not wither. In everything he does he prospers. But the wicked who do not meditate on the word of God, who disregard it day after day, are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous who love the Bible. But the way of the wicked will perish.